Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Murmurations podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Veronica Collar from Lancaster University. Morning, Veronica. Hello, Darren. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. Veronica's a reader in uh, Discourse Studies and we're going to talk today about lots of things to do with uh, language and discourse and communication. But before we go any further, Veronica, do you just want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your research and teaching and your background interests? Okay, I'll try and keep it short. So, um, yeah, I have this somewhat vague title, Reader and Discourse Studies, which means that I do a lot of looking at how people use language in various social contexts, really. Okay. And the social contexts I've looked at most are business and corporate discourse in general. I've also done work in health discourse um, and more recently also politics. And I also have a particular interest in language and gender and sexuality. So quite broad based, really. And sometimes it's a bit more of business, sometimes a bit more of health, sometimes a bit more politics or whatever. Um, but that's where I look at how people use language and to what ends and what they do with language, really, in those different Excellent. areas. Excellent. Thank you. Um, on that point, then should we just for re, uh, for listeners who are less familiar with some of the stuff that we do mm -hmm. should we just uh, familiarize themselves familiarize them with a word word discourse yes that's a classic isn't it you know every yeah. single student of mine has been through that question really how do you define discourse you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> so um again i mean i once did an article on that and i think i counted 13 different definitions of discourse and that was only the literature i looked at but very generally i would say it's the use of language in social contexts for particular ends in that social context. So to talk about something, to establish a particular identity and a relationship with who you're talking to. You also want to make sure that what you say or write is coherent, hangs together well, is organized in some sort of way. And some people would argue, I among them, that also discourse is based on and influences cognition. So ideas we have, beliefs, values, knowledge, ideologies, all that sort of thing. So that they find the expression discourse, but that also the language use that we're exposed to can also influence what we believe or what norms we hold. Yeah. Um, so thinking about, if we think about communication and language, it's very much that the how, the the how of communication, the how of language, and what tools we use to get ideas across to each other to serve particular purposes in, in, in sharing ideas in society. Yeah, sharing ideas, but also positioning ourselves. Yeah, so yeah. What identity do we want to get across towards whom? And how do we negotiate the relationship with somebody else, right? And yes, it's a very language oriented. I mean, that's a very, I found that that is a very British thing, actually. So this oh, yeah, yeah, of discourse analysis as being part of linguistics. So in Germany, for instance, discourse analysis is a matter for sociologists. Mm. I mean, to the point that I've been at discourse analysis, well, one discourse analysis conference in Germany and was asked, you know, so what's your background? And I said, well, I'm a linguist. And people looked at me and said, so what are you doing at a discourse analysis conference then? All oh, right. I said, what yeah. would I not be doing at a discourse <laughs> analysis? So that was a complete misunderstanding there, you know. So, but yeah. yes, you're right. It's absolutely very much about, you know, it's a bit about what do people say, you know, but or 
mostly the focus is on how do they say it and then also following up from that why do they say what they say and why do they say it in the way they do yeah sure I mean, it's a really interesting point actually because i came from a media uh, journalism storytelling background mm -hmm. and a lot of what i was doing overlapped with areas of cultural studies but when i started to work with discourse theory and tools of discourse analysis that pushed me because of that british context that mm. pushed me straight towards linguistics because mm. the field of critical discourse analysis is obviously so much of it stems back to linguistics um should we just before we move on the the, the that word critical as mm. well that's so important in terms of it sometimes gets a bit of bad press and sometimes gets a bit of stick but it's a, it serves a very specific purpose in sorry my phone's ringing in the kind of focus of what we do do you just do you want to talk about cri the critical element yeah it's a bit misunderstood i feel you yeah. know so because in common parlance it's often meant to be fault finding or you know having an issue with everything and you know nagging or something like that you know and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's really not what it means in a no. sort of social science kind of understanding you know where you would say for me it would mean that you um, really start with a particular perceived social problem all right mm. so and you seek to identify it to explain it through looking at the role that discourse plays the way people use language you know in order either to challenge a particular social wrong or um, to even contribute to it deliberately or not deliberately um, but also then to seek, okay, so how could we talk about it differently to ameliorate it, to make it better, right? So there's a couple of classics in critical discourse studies, of course, that people have looked at. So, so immigration discourse and linked to it, racism has been a classic, you know. People have also looked at poverty or economic and socioeconomic inequality you know, so a perceived problem, problem in the sense ultimately that somebody is suffering you know, in a social context. And the role that language use plays in making that better or worse or keeping it alive or bringing it about in the first place. Yeah. So that for me would be a critical approach. Yes. It's perhaps worth mentioning that there's also something called positive discourse analysis, mm. which again is a bit unfortunate because it sounds as if critical discourse analysis is all just negative, you mm. know, which is yeah. not quite it. But that's I find that quite interesting because that's about looking at um, things, kinds of ways of using language that actually do not you know foster inequality or uh, exclusion or marginalization so you know in non-technical terms things language use where things go right as it were you yeah. know so and i think that's that's quite interesting as a complement perhaps to critical discourse studies yeah and i think it's important to uh, to keep an eye on that positive element even when we're doing critical analysis because it's i think it's far more constructive to be able to say look these things are a problem these are unhelpful ways of using language however if we if you discuss the topic like this it serves a different purpose and i think that's a really important part to, to cda that it seems to be becoming more common I would um, hope so, because I think it's been a bit overlooked, you know, there's been yeah. a lot of focus and perhaps quite rightly, you know, on how inequality or exclusion or various negative isms, you know, are brought about and perpetuated and reinforced mm. by the way people use language. But we sometimes forget that language can also be used to challenge this. 
you yes. know, and it is used to challenge that. Yeah, you know, so I think that's really needs to be kept in mind. Yeah, and even when you're looking at the countercurrents of power and the way in which people push back and struggle against mm. um, as kind of exploitative power or established um, systems of power, mm -hmm. looking at those dynamics in itself is critical as well. And it's it, in terms of its critical focus, but it's critical importance. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes, obviously I would agree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to ask you is about any current research that you're doing that you want to talk about in relation to current events or anything you've been talking about recently, perhaps on immigration or gender or anything like that. God, how long have we got? We have, we yeah, have a yeah. bit of time, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, I, I, part of my problem, if it is a problem, is that I'm really interested in a lot of things. You know, mm. I always say I have more interest than lifetime, but then again, better than the other way around, right? Yeah, definitely. So, so, um, so yeah, I'm currently doing research and I think, yeah, all if not most of the, um, the fields that I've mentioned. So I have done and still doing research on political discourse, especially around Brexit. Right? So currently I'm uh, co-editing and also contributing to a special journal issue that is about how language is, uh, sorry, how Brexit is talked and written about outside of the United Kingdom. Mm. Right? Because I edited a volume on, you know, discourse of Brexit and that was always in the UK, but yeah. obviously the whole Brexit exercise if that's the right word has been very inward looking the whole process and looking at how is brexit talked and written about outside of the uk is meant as a bit of a corrective to that really you know yeah so that's the political discourse also um looking a bit at well at the language of populism and particularly the voices of supporters so that's a mm. book project you know so not so much the top-down discourse by perhaps populist politicians but you know how do supporters of these politicians engage with that on social media yeah right? so i'm looking at the instagram account of the brexit party in that okay. respect you know so how do people take up what's posted there and play off it and uh you know get their ideas across it's also again establish their identities you know it's especially interesting when somebody comes in who's actually not in favor of brexit so then things get really interesting on, on that account yeah really, yeah you know just so, to just yeah. to um, pick up on that the term populism because mm. I'm interested in that as well. But that was another thing where I've I've heard people a couple of times say, uh, "Oh, populism just gets thrown about as a term," and the, basically any 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 politics you don't like that that's successful and does things you don't want it to do, you just call it populism as a negative term. It's it's obviously not that, is it? It's something uh, very <laughs> Yes. It's a specific thing. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so it's not just, it's a bit like, oh, only people I don't like have an ideology, right? That's <laughs> equal nonsense. I mean, I'm yeah. full of ideologies. Everybody yeah. is, right? So the question of, are you aware of it? What you do with it, really, you know? Um, another thing that I often hear is, oh, but every politician is populist in a democracy because they all want to please their voters, don't they? And they say, yeah, no. You know, I mean, the thing is, if you expand a term to that extent, then you can't explain anything with it anymore. You know, if it's just everything, then we can just as well ditch it. So, no. So I would say, and, you know, um, God, there's various ways of talking about populism in the literature. But one thing would see I, populism as um, a particular worldview. 
according to which you have a homogenous society, you know, society where everybody is more or less of the same opinion and the same wants and wishes. That's often referred to as the people, like as in the people have spoken on Brexit, you know, mm. or whatever. And then they construct uh, very much an outgroup, very often immigrants, but crucially also an elite that is acts against the interest of the people. Yes. Right, so that could be Brussels as a metonymy for various EU bodies, or it could be Westminster, which is another metonymy for the UK government, you know, or any elite or big business is another favorite, you know. So any elite that sort of uh, doesn't act in the interest of the people, and then you usually have somebody who sets themselves up as um, somebody who will act on behalf of the people against the elites. Yeah. Right? So you could see it as an ideology or something that piggybacks on other ideologies, or you could see it as a style or a discursive practice, a way of using language, you know, or a bit of both really, but it uh, crucially relies on this idea of the homogenous society in contrast to a self-serving self elite and somebody yeah. who needs to defend the people against that elite. Yeah, the idea that the elite has, has kind of lost its kind of democratic representation of the people. Or never um, had it in the first place. Or never had it, yeah, yeah. If you look at, you know, if you look at the elite as big corporations, they have never been yeah. democratic. Yeah. You know. uh, also, I like, I like this other idea in the, in the literature that, which I think, I think makes a lot of sense is in the way in which as a narrative tool that tells a story about representing the people against a particular elite, mm. it's able to combine lots of different ideologies and combine people who would sit side by side in that kind of so-called struggle. Mm. Um, but they're often of opposing ideological positions, but they kind of united against that supposed elite that they're against. Yeah, it, yeah, it's sometimes a bit of an alliance of convenience, isn't yeah, it? Like yeah, we have the common true. enemy. But what's also really important is that populism varies very considerably across, you know, uh, political and historical contexts, mm. right? So it's no means always right-wing populism, right? So if you see it as something that piggybacks or uses other ideologies, you know, um, then you could say, okay, it can go together with nationalism, for instance, but it can equally go together with socialism. And in, you know, other parts of the world, so for instance, in Latin America, you have a lot of where populism goes together with indigenous movements and environmentalism, for instance, yeah. right? So uh, we sometimes think populism, that's the Nigel Farage's of this world, perhaps. And I know that you have done a lot of work on, on that particular pol politician, Darren. But yeah, it's, it can piggyback on lots of things and yeah, these things differ a lot across the world, really. Yeah. Um, in terms of current events, I mean, there's been lots and lots of metaphor analysis in relation to, to Brexit in terms of both supporting and opposing mm, Brexit. Mm. Metaphor was used a lot. But very, very recently, there was the, uh, the stories about people trying to cross the English Channel. And there was a lot of there was a lot of metaphor and language kind of loosely connected to the the kind of mm. words that we saw during Brexit in the immigration debates. Um, I think for, I think Farage actually. Really yeah, did. yeah, he saw he saw an opportunity for himself. I guess we can say. Yeah, so he yeah. talked about uh, a summer invasion into Britain. 
right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've recently talked about that, that, you know, that we have this um, militarization of language, right? And um, for instance, in the Brexit campaign, you know, uh, Farage used immigration a lot in order to argue for leaving the European Union. And if you trace that across the Brexit campaign, the couple of months, you can see that he very quickly um, upped the ante there. You know, so he started linguistically with leaving it in the realm of possibility to saying, you know, people who may be coming to our shores. And within a few months, the closer it got to the referendum date, it was people who are on our doorstep and who will overrun us. So they were spatially much closer all of a sudden. And it was also a much greater certainty, you know, that they would be coming. So increasing the perceived threat and invasion does, of course, the same. And what I personally find worrying about it, apart from the lack of humanity, you know, not humanity, but, you know, um, humaneness, if that is a word, um, is really that it gets picked up a lot and gets mainstreamed. So the whole idea of these are all invaders into Britain gets picked up then when the Home Secretary says, oh, we should put the, you know, we should enlist the Royal Navy, you know, to police the channel. You know, and then you no longer talk about militarization of language. You have a military metaphor in the language, but that then is, can lead, I mean, it hasn't, but it could lead to actual militarization of practices with all that means, really. Yeah. So language does matter. You know, language can have material yeah. consequences. Yeah. And also just when, you, when there's, the, there's one issue of, of refugees looking for safety or looking for a better life and the mm. way in which you talk about your shores and whether you're um welcoming them in and accommodating them or whether you're defending yourselves against the wave or the invasion is, is a good example of what we were talking about earlier on the, the, the different ways in which language and metaphor could be used for completely opposite purposes mm -hmm. yeah um what do you want to give some other examples of, of really pow powerful examples of how metaphor functions in storytelling that people who are less familiar with what we do might not necessarily question it, but when you give these examples, they really draw mm. attention to the power of metaphor? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, recent events, we've had lots of recent events, right? So another thing that a couple of colleagues and I are looking at at the moment is metaphors for the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, yes. right? And we're particularly interested in metaphors other than war metaphors, because those are the obvious ones and they have been, you know, much criticized from all sorts of corners, you know, and they often serve political ends rather than anything else, you know, but um, so one narrative that you have there is, for instance, the, um, the journey metaphor. Yeah, or the, more specifically the sea journey metaphor, yeah. right? So that we are all in the same boat on a stormy sea that is the pandemic. And sometimes then you get uh, cartoons where you can already see bluer skies perhaps ahead of you. So an orientation to the future, etc. right? And some people have said, you know, as it became clear that people are differently affected by the pandemic, given on how poor or not they are, how, how much access to good healthcare they have, etc. that people said, well, actually, we're not in the same boat. We're all in the same storm, but some of us are in luxury yachts and some of us are in dinghies, you know? So it's a very productive metaphorical story 
you know, so where we got hit by this wave, we're in the storm, you know, and we hope to get into calmer waters, you know, um, but we don't all start out the same way. So it's a very rich kind of story that people have elaborated in many, many ways. And then you can also talk about, well, do we have a captain on the ship? Now, who would that be? You know, so um, yeah, very rich, lots of happening. And, you know, we're looking across languages as well. So we have examples from, oh God, I think 25 languages at this wow. point, you know, um, and that is a very, very productive story. And you know, the, the sea journey that, that you find, not only with, with a pandemic, with all sorts of, you know, difficult endeavors over a long time. Really. Yeah, I think I find it fascinating the ways in which the same metaphors get adapted, uh, not just different metaphors used according to the ideological context that they're used in, but when the same metaphor gets used just just uh, slightly differently to serve a different ideological purpose so we do this with the war with the mm -hmm. second world war in britain mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looking back to say that the say boris might look back and use a churchillian metaphor or a blitz metaphor or uh Duncan spirit metaphor to his purpose but then a critic of him will also use a, this, one of the same metaphors to criticize him yes yes you can do that absolutely you know and then also, I mean, with, with this whole war scenario, again, there's a whole story attached to that, right? Mm. So, so who's the enemy, right? And for instance, if you look at, well, you can have invasion of migrants, you know, where migrants are the enemy, you know, and, but you can also have, you know, com combating or battling the virus, you know, um, where then, which many people have said, well, it's a bit inadequate because, you know, an enemy wants to do you harm. A virus doesn't have any volition whatsoever. It just, the only thing that a virus wants to do is uh, procreate and stay alive, you know. Um, so, and, but it has interesting implications, you know, because if you go into this crisis mode and we're battling the virus and for instance, the government themselves sets themselves up as, you know, this command center, what does that make the population? You know, not their voters anymore, but the foot soldiers who have to follow orders, right? That's a very different relation between population and government than one of democratically elected representatives and voters, mm. right? So the metaphor leads to a completely different way of thinking and experiencing, you know, social relations there, yeah, political yeah. relations. Yeah, I think... I've seen you respond to this question before. I don't know whether this is a little bit uh, on the spot, but I've seen you respond to the question before of, uh, isn't the critical analyst just imposing this narrative upon the language they look at and they're putting that on it as a, and con almost constructing the critique rather than that, that metaphor potentially having that, um, meaning to some people who who receive or read the story that can happen but i would say that's not very good discourse analyst yes you yeah. know who does that really you know so i mean with discourse analysis there's basically two pitfalls one is that you describe everything in minute detail and never get to answer why this you think this happens yeah right and the other is the opposite that you jump straight to interpretation right and don't bother with any evidence in the text Yes. So that would be two extreme positions. And I often talk about evidence-based uh, interpretation, right? So it needs to be 
the in, well, as a discourse analyst, I look at texts, right, spoken or written. So for me, it needs to there needs to be some evidence of something in the text or in um, in the written or spoken text. So just to see a metaphor, and then my 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 own mind starting to embellish it and saying, oh, this would lead to that, and it would lead to that, and you could then think that, etc. Well, if it's not in the text, does it really happen? You know, psychologists will have a different way of going about that, you know, so they will look at in experiments, if you present people with different metaphors, are they more likely than to favor particular policy solutions, for instance, so there's some sure. really interesting research on that as well, mm. you know, but both psychology and language are, and discourse analysis are evidence, need to be evidence-based, Yeah. you know, so it needs to, you need to point to something in your experiment or in the text and say this is where I see this happening otherwise it's conjecture yes yeah I think that what going back to what you said at the start as well about context is that when we do this kind of analysis context is important because we're saying often in in the critique we're saying this is a particular ideological context in which this metaphor might serve this purpose it's not that it's not that we're just saying well anybody who reads this text or reads this story is gonna think this no no again again that is a rather I, I would say out crude and outdated i understanding you know i mean it's also a bit um, arrogant really because it yeah. presupposes you know that people can't think for themselves yeah we wouldn't know. be doing analysis because otherwise we would have thought it as well yeah exactly <laughs> you know and what makes us so special right so <laughs> are we in any way better than your yeah. average reader of a news forum really you mm. know so it's a lot of arrogance in there really yeah um and also as you say it depends on who reads it under what circumstances you know what other texts they have read on on a similar topic you know what conversations they might have about it you know and we've known for a long time and it's been a long time since Stuart hall came up with his reading positions that you can be what's the word compliant or oppositional or negotiated i believe yeah. Yeah. so you know i ideology through discourse is not something that you can just drip feed into people and they will just swallow it uncritically yes you know there are particular contexts and particular conditions that make make it conducive for ideology to work so mm. for instance if you never read anything in your life but the uh, guardian yeah i don't want to do more daily mail bashing i think you know the, the, the that point has been made you know but if you read nothing in your whole life but the guardian or the guardian yeah. news forum and you never talk to anybody or follow anyone on twitter or wherever you know who has um who has other views etc then you know whatever you read will feed into an already held belief of course mm. and reinforce it yeah but and people have talked about echo chambers but uh echo chambers are to some extent voluntary you know, so I make a point of following people on Twitter whose opinion I do not share. You yeah. know, you know, just to because I like seeing the other side as well, as it were. Yeah, you know? yeah. And yeah. I like that idea of, of understanding as well. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that you can have a conversation with someone you know you disagree with because you want to try and understand how they see things. That doesn't mean that you're um you're you're kind of apologizing for that stuff or or accommodating it or excusing it it just mm -hmm. is it just is really really important as i think we keep seeing for us to try and understand each other yeah that's a really important point yes so yeah and understanding does not mean condoning mm. you know i can understand lots of things and still think they are wrong 
Yes. You know, but the difference is that I engage with them, hopefully, you know, and don't just, you know, get triggered by it or don't just react in a way that I say, oh, you're all fascists or you're all social justice warriors or you're all this or you're all that. And, you know, yeah. where I just, you know, put people down because I don't like their, their beliefs. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, so I think so. that's it's very important. I mean, I remember one thing that I did on for Discourse of a Brexit for that book. So my colleague and I, we looked at Vox Pops with uh, Leaf voters or people who proclaimed that they would be using, that they would be voting Leave in the referendum. Right. So in the run up to the referendum. And there was this one guy, somewhere on the South Coast, don't remember now, um, who then started talking about why is he voting Leave? He started talking about immigration, etc., etc., And he uttered this classic phrase, I'm not a racist, but, mm. right? and you know, now lots of discourse analysts and critical discourse analysts might sneer there and say, oh, yeah, 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 we know that one, don't we? I'm not a, that disclaimer. I'm not a racist, but, and then, of course, they're hideously racist. And I thought, okay, let's look at this guy. So we had videos of that. So the first thing was that this guy had amazing body language. He was very, you know, you know, using gesture very much. And he had this pleading body language. He says, honestly, I'm not a racist. Yeah, so he did that with his hands. So it was really a plead, you know, to a plea that he wasn't a racist. And then he started telling a very personal story about how he was made homeless over Christmas and for two months and the council couldn't house him because they had uh, refugees to house, etc., etc. You know, and I thought, well, maybe this guy really is not a racist. So perhaps sometimes when people say, I'm not a racist, but they really are not a racist. Mm. You know, yes. I think... I think his argument was still wrong because that the council can't house him as well has nothing to do with immigrants, but the lack of funding for local government, etc. You know, and he didn't make that connection. Um, but, you know, I think it's very easy to sneer at people, you know, but yeah. it's much harder to actually engage with them and try to understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, one of my mates, my mate's mum, and she really, really wasn't a racist at all. Mm. She was one of the loveliest person people I've ever met. Mm. She was saying she used this phrase. I remember it was years and years ago, much younger. Mm. And it was because the the company that she was working for, if I remember rightly, the company she's working for in a care home were changing the con. She was a cleaner, mm -hmm. and they were changing the contracts and putting them on a much, giving them much worse conditions on mm. much lower pay. And they were all like, well, why would we carry on doing this job for that? And the people that were coming in to, ta to, to, to take over those jobs mm -hmm. or were willing to do those jobs, some of them were um, from other countries in Europe where they were willing to work for that money. Yeah. And she said, well, like you say, it's not anything to do with immigrants. It's to do with the it's money. Yeah, that's a political problem. I mean, yeah. that's that's something where you need something like a minimum wage, you yeah. know, and lots less so-called self-employed people, etc. I mean, that's a policy thing. Yeah, you know, that's nothing to do with immigration. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. What another thing I wanted to talk to you about before we run out of time, because mm -hmm. I just looked at the time and I just realised I, I just God, thought yeah. we were getting warmed up. <laughs> Yeah, God, we are, we're, we've been at it for half an hour already, Darren. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, was podcasting. Mm. Um, I'm 
coming somewhere towards the end of my first season now before I have a little break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How long is the season for you? <laughs> it's going to be 10 to 12 episodes, I think. Okay. So provided everything goes to plan, I think it's going to be 12. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm not too precious. But yeah, that's probably the probably what it'll be. Mm -hmm. What you you you're, you've been doing a podcast, a monthly podcast for about a year now. I have, along with two others, Erica Dorridge and ben, Bernard de Klerk. Yes, so um, I'm co-host of a podcast. So it's really nice to be at the other side for once to be interviewed. You know, <laughs> it's really relaxing by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, our podcast is called Words and Actions. And its tagline is a podcast about how language matters in business, politics and beyond. And Erica, my co-host and I, we wrote a textbook together in, on business communication. So that's where we started out from. And we've done one season now. We've had 12 episodes out, very loosely based on, on the textbook. But now we've started planning our second season, you know, where we want to look a bit more at politics as well. Right. So, so yeah, and it's a very different format from yours, you know, right. so there's three of us and we have a post-production company and we only do it monthly because a lot of work goes into it because we do analysis a bit and an intro with sort of teaching moments and then we do an interview. So, so it's, it's quite a big deal, you know, a very different format, but that's a beauty of podcasts, you know, that they come in such different formats, really. Yeah, absolutely. What have you found in terms of the f even when there's a radically different format there's a different feel to the kind of to what you would do if you were doing say media work as an academic mm -hmm. or if you were doing a conference or a workshop or classroom based what have you I, I find there's something quite not just not real not just relaxing or creative but there's something there's a different dynamic to conversation that feels quite liberating to compared to some of the other forums that we have to talk in what have you found doing the podcast an interesting question. I mean, we've worked together for a year now, you know, and we've had many good moments. We also had the occasional difficult moment, it has to be said, really? you know. And I remember one episode that we recorded where we had a really difficult moment about how we do this and different time that people were willing to invest, etc. And so we had a rather respectful but difficult conversation and we thought then we had some reached some sort of agreement but there was still a bit of rankling perhaps going on and I said okay we're going we have to record this now and we pressed the record button and we started chatting and liking each other again you know it was the most fascinating thing you know because yeah. you do have this common interest you know and you're talking to each other but you, of course you're also talking to an absent audience so mm. that's you know you're aware of that and you're talking about stuff that you're really interested in you know and that you feel strongly about you know and you don't have to be like when you talk at a conference where you need to have researched every footnote really yeah. you know yeah. and use a lot of technical vocabulary etc so you can be a bit looser in podcasts and but you have more time than for media work because for media work you always have to talk in 20 second batches really yeah. you know very often yeah. especially with with interviews you know so it's sort of the sweet spot in the middle i feel yeah i think there's there's so much of what we do one is so structured mm -hmm. um and two is rigorously peer-reviewed or scrutinized um in an academic context and then you jump to the kind of soundbite media context where the complexity of what, complexity of what you say might be reduced down and unfairly mm. criticized or critiqued as well mm. and i just think 
sometimes I think we're really crying out for that chance to just have a relaxed conversation, share interesting ideas, talk about things in an accessible way, and you know, maybe even just get the odd thing wrong from time to time and just be like, oh yeah, I made a bit of a mistake there. Like, yeah. It's okay sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is okay. And in a podcast, you actually have, well, either you can edit it out or you have enough time to, to correct that, you know, and you don't feel like you're on being judged. You know, yeah. it's not like, oh, you have a conference audience and they will may take you, oh, and I see person so-and-so is there, they will probably take you apart in the discussion, mm. you know, so you don't have that, but you still, you know, have uh, enough room to get get some detail in and not talk in 20-second batches. So it's, I find it really, you know, relaxing and invigorating. And you said it's been really good for the soul. You said you started this in, you know, at, uh, in lockdown. So, and, and I agree, you know, it's a, it's a yeah. good thing to do. And it's also a nice resource, you know, mm -hmm. so for our podcast, for instance, we also have transcripts and blog entries and glossaries. So it's also meant for students and teachers to some extent. But um, even this, you know, so me talking about what's discourse, you know, that's something I might link, for instance, for my discourse analysis class that I, that I teach at uni, you yeah. know, for what it's worth. <laughs> Students will have to, have to be the judge of whether it's any useful. You yeah. know, so. back, back under pressure again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we've run out of time, but um, right. yeah. it's been really good to talk to you. Nice to see you again, seeing as we would, have, we would have crossed paths at uh, conferences that haven't happened. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but but, but we will again at one yeah. point. We shall meet again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, it's been lovely. Thanks for asking me, Darren. That's okay. Thanks for coming on. And also just thanks for being a really supportive colleague in the field, um, in our research field as well. Um, I know I speak on behalf of um, our peers as well. You've uh, always been supportive and positive. So thank you very much. Oh, that's, it's a, a matter nice of course. Off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take good care, Darren. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.